Thank you, Ben. You're very kind. I appreciate that. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, it was a, I, I love this part of the state. It was a great, I drove over on Highway 60 from Polk County and uh, enjoyed all of that wide open space. And it's just good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's a tough time for church plants. So let me just say, it's just so encouraging to me to be able to come, to see so many of you here. Many of our plants have struggled uh, through the last year. Some of them haven't made it. And so just to see you doing so well, uh, to see you together is really, really just it really is a fun thing and really exciting for me. Uh, and it's just so many points of connection. Community Bible reading, what you're doing, actually came out of our church and out of our, our network of churches in Polk County and has gone all over the world. So it's an amazing thing to see even you guys reading Community Bible reading. So it's, we do the same thing. So just that point of connection is neat. We love Ben and Alana and their family. Uh, and I just couldn't be more thrilled uh, to be here with you this morning. So pray for us. Uh, this year, God continues to move uh, his kingdom forward, so we, we have already st- started a new church in Sarasota this year, downtown Sarasota. Uh, we're getting ready to put a planter that's going to be a Spanish-speaking pastor in the Kissimmee, Poinciana, Davenport area later this year, and we hope also that there is another church in the, in, in the workings for somewhere up between here and New Smyrna Beach, probably along the coast, so... Um, Despite everything happening in the world, God continues to build his church. Isn't that great news? And I just, I'm grateful to come on this, uh, on this Palm Sunday to be with you. I love, I love this day as it kicks off Holy Week for us. If you have a Bible and you want to go there, we are going to be in Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. So we're going to read from Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 28, we're going to read down through verse 44. And so if you, if you want to follow along, I don't know, will it be behind me? Yes, it's behind me on the screen as well. If you're at home, I'm sure it's on your screen as well. Thanks for tuning in with us and being here. Uh, we miss you and uh, glad you could join with us in that format. So let's, let's read together uh, from this text here in Luke chapter 19. Hear God's word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, <clears throat> going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Beth. Phagi and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, <clears throat> go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. 
Jesus is, now that was not nearly as dramatic as the video. I mean, that's anticlimactic. Let's just go ahead and start there, right? And I don't have within me the, the, to do all the voices, so I'm not even going to try to do that. Uh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, to death, to the cross. That's what this whole next week, the momentum of this next week to Friday is about. But here's what I want to say to you is, he's going to Ju- Jerusalem, to his death, to the cross. He wants you and I to go with him. So the question that we have to ponder this morning is, is will you, will you take up your cross and follow him? Which is, of course, what we're called to do in the, in the Gospels. Will you take up your cross and follow him? Because this famous scene here ends a section of material in Luke's Gospel that begins all the way back in chapter 9. And there in chapter 9 it says that there came a point in Jesus' ministry, he'd been ministering up in Galilee, kind of out of the reach of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but it says that there came a time where he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He decisively turned toward the suffering that awaited him on Good Friday in the city. He chose love. He chose a life of love, and if you're going to follow him, you will have to make a similar decision. The prophet Isaiah called him a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and so to be his disciple means that you are choosing more sorrow and more heartache, not less, because you follow him. C.S. Lewis, who I adore, famously said that there are really only two ways to live. You can choose love, and as a consequence, you will live your life with a broken heart, or you can choose selfishness, and you can become unbreakable, which is far, far worse. So when we talk about taking up our cross and following Jesus, that's what we mean, choosing a life of love, not selfishness, which means learning to live with sadness, learning to be able to endure and push through the sadness. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, wait a minute, isn't Palm Sunday all about like the the worship and the celebrating and the waving of palms? Yes, of course it is. Palm branches and processions, and we'll get to all that. We'll see it in a minute. We're going to see it in this text. But as the crowds lauded him, here's the thing that caught me yet again in reading this, and I don't know if you caught it, but as the crowds lauded him, what is Jesus doing? Did you see it? In verse 41, look there again, as they are lifting their voices, crying out in worship, praising the one who is coming, it says that Jesus was weeping, that he saw the city and he began to weep, he began to weep. He was so fundamentally unselfish and outward looking that even as the crowds celebrated, he was sad. And here's what I want to say, if you're going to live a life of love for others, you're going to have to learn how to be sad too. It takes tremendous courage to live this way. Uh, in screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis again, I, I told you I adore him. Uh, and you can usually tell how prepared I am for a sermon by how many C.S. Lewis references there are. The more there are, the less prepared I am. I've just like thrown some stuff together. Although I have a few this morning, I actually did prepare. But in screw tape letters, he puts, it, uh, he puts this into the mouth of the senior demon. Some insightful wisdom. Here's what he says. Uh, the senior demon, if you know, it's two, it's two demons talking back and forth, conspiring as to how to just ruin humanity. And, and here's one of the things that the senior demon says. He says, hatred it has its pleasures. It is the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. The more he fears, the more he will hate. And hatred is also a great painkiller for shame. To make a deep wound in his charity, in his love, he advises the young demon, you should therefore first defeat his courage. Now here's what all of that means. The choice in love is often whether to be angry or to just be sad. And anger is a lot easier. 
What it says there, there's a kind of payoff with anger. It feels good. It reimburses the pain, the heartbreak of having somebody sin against you or just how hard it is for us to be related to one another, sinful people that we are in a sinful world. Anger often reimburses all of that pain that, that comes with choosing love. And the truth is that we are angry more than we are sad or more easily than we are sad. But if you dig into the anger, what you see is if you just go a layer deeper or a few layers deeper, what's underneath it is fear. The root of anger is fear, which means that the root of love is courage. It takes tremendous courage. Listen to this. It takes tremendous courage to keep showing up to get your heart broken. Doesn't that sound like fun? Aren't you excited about that? I mean, you came all this way to tell us that. I mean, can't we get some good news? It's coming, I promise. But the first thing I want you to see is, look, that is, that is the job description in marriage, isn't it? To just keep showing up to get your heart broken. It's the job description in parenting. Ben will tell it's the job description in pastoring. To just find the strength to keep, because the alternative, remember what C.S. Lewis said, the only alternative to showing up to have your heart broken is to shut your, shut your life off and become unbreakable, which is way, way worse. And so this is our job description. This is our commission. Marvel knows this, okay? I mean, and if Marvel knows it, we should know it. There's a scene, if you've seen the new WandaVision show, really great. It's really, it's really a story about grief. It really is. But in the very last episode, there's a scene where the lead character, uh, Wanda, is overwhelmed by her loss and by her grief. And she says this. Listen to this. She says, it's like a wave washing over me again and again. It knocks me down. And when I try to stand up, it just comes for me again, and I just can't. I can't. She says, it's going to drown me. And the response of the other main character there in that little conversation was, yes, but what is grief if not love persevering? That's profound. What is grief if not love persevering? It takes courage to be sad and to keep being sad and to keep showing up to have your heart broken and to not just become angry and close your heart off to others, to keep showing up. And so if you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it's a skill you have to learn, and that's what this passage in Luke can teach us, okay? It, we can learn this here, because in order to get the courage to be sad like this, you have to see, first, the conquering king, who is also the weeping king. And if you see the conquering king who is the weeping king, and if you, really, if you really see his tears, then his tears can give you a mission and they can give you a voice. And that's where we're going to go in this text this morning. So let's, let's walk along through it together, Okay. First, in order to find the courage that you need to be sad, to keep showing up to have your heart broken, you have to see Jesus, the conquering king, and celebrate him and crown him. In other words, you have to know that you need a king. Look here, the crowds in Luke 19 are singing from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are rightfully discerning that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And in fact, Jesus has orchestrated these events, we're told here in Luke's gospel. He is the one, he is a, a prophet who is doing prophet things. The prophets would often stage things as spiritual lessons to, to go along with their message, and that's what Jesus is doing here. This is the fulfillment of the prophet's word that a king would come and on the Mount of Olives would defeat the enemies of God's people and bring salvation. And so the Bible, which is God's words to us, teaches us that there is a deep desire in the human heart to crown a king. Because there was once a king, and his beauty and his love and his power and his wisdom were like the sun and the rain, and we are the flower. But the story of humanity is that we've rebelled against this king in order to rule ourselves. And the problem is, and I, I promise this will be the last time, well, I think, I hate to quote C.S. Lewis the third time, but here's what he said. 
So maybe I wasn't very prepared this morning. Who knows? But here's what he said. He says, spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. We have to build our lives around and serve something. Because it's the way we've been made. We can't have no king. We all live for something. We all look to something for meaning and hope. And whatever it is, whatever it is, if it is not the true king you've been created to serve, then it does not serve you. You serve it. You crown it. If it's family, you crown it. And the problem is, is you can become a slave. You can become a slave to your kids and their happiness. You, you can experience crippling anxiety over whether they're doing okay or whether you're doing okay or whether your relationship with them is okay or whatever it might be. It's, if it's career, you crown it. You serve it. It becomes your Lord and you become driven to succeed. Whatever it is, we are spiritually starving for a king. We're not free We've all crowned things that demand that we bow down before them. You see, when we lost the true king, everything in the world broke. It went to pieces. And this is the Christian doctrine of sin, but there was a prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 that the king would return to put things back together again. And it's not just a Jewish hope. It's a human hope. If you think of all of the legends, all the stories that we tell, think of King Arthur. According to legend on the, tomb of the, on the tombstone of King Arthur, Uh, is written, here lies Arthur, the once and future king. In other words, this hope that the good king who had brought about Camelot would again someday come back and make it right again. It's a human hope, and here he is. Look, here he is, cresting the Mount of Olives, and the crowds rightly break into celebration and song at his coming. Now look at what they sing. This is verse 38. They say, Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so his coming and his triumph, we're told here, would bring peace and glory. And if you're going to live with the inner composure and strength of character and the the courage to continue to show up to get your heart broken, these are the things that you need. You need peace and glory, not only in the earth because of the king's coming, but to come into you as well. And peace here is a word that refers to something that was broken, but that is now being put back together. It's, it's wholeness, it's harmony, and we're told here that his coming would bring peace and the peace of heaven to earth. But here's the thing, if you see him and crown him, then you can participate in this peace. It can give you an inner steadfastness and repose, a tranquility and calm, which is the opposite of the anxiety and the drivenness that I described that comes with crowning other kings. Jesus is the king who brings peace. There's a little sign of this here. It says, did you notice in verse 30 that the colt that Jesus rode into Jerusalem was one on which no one had ever yet sat? Why that detail? What's the significance of that? And we're told that the disciples found the colt and untied it and set Jesus on it. Now, let me ask you, what usually happens? Now, maybe this is more a Polk County thing than over here, but we know this, okay? Because we, we got there's some rural stuff going on over there in Polk County. But what happens usually the first time a cowboy tries to ride a horse that's never been ridden. Or, okay, maybe this, what happens when the three-year-old tries to ride the dog through the house? Okay? Usually the animal doesn't respond with something like, hmm, this is new, but okay, let's go with it, it'll be fun, right? No, the horse 
kicks and bucks and tries to throw the cowboy off. You have to break a horse in order to ride it. It takes time, but not here. And so this is a miracle. This is what the commentators say. This is a miracle. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt that had never been ridden because he is the king that brings peace. And the colt, bearing him along, is a picture of the peace that all who serve him can have. But not just peace, we're told here, glory also, right? Glory in the highest. And so glory in the Bible refers to the weight of something, to the the degree to which it really matters. And of course, God should matter most of all. John Piper defines sin as the glory of God not honored and the holiness of God not reverenced, and the greatness of God not not admired, and the beauty of God not treasured, and the goodness of God not savored, and the faithfulness of God not trusted, and the wrath of God not feared, and the grace of God not cherished, and the person of God not loved. Glory means that God, when you get glory, see, believing in him, seeing him can fill you with glory, which means that God can get put in his proper place in your life. And, and when that happens, everything else gets put in its proper place as well. You need a king. And only this king. Here's the rightful king, and only him, only if you serve him, can he fill you up with the peace and the glory that you need so that you can have all of the inner strength and composure and perseverance that it takes to keep showing up to have your heart broken. Now, in order to get the courage, though, you need to see Jesus, the conquering king, but you also have to see that this conquering king is a weeping king, and that's a surprise, right? That verse there where it talks about him weeping over the city is really the surprise of the text, at least as I read it. So you have to know that you need a king, but you have to know the king you need. And his tears here, I think, are what prove that he is the king that you need. You know, when Muhammad entered Mecca victoriously in 629 AD, he came riding a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men, and some 10,000 foot soldiers. It was a show of force, which is in keeping with the way of the world. But Jesus, we're told, entered Jerusalem, not riding a war horse, but a colt, fulfilling the words that were read a minute ago from Zechariah's prophecy. Behold, you're a king, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. All the other kings were superheroes, Jesus was not. He came not in power, but weakness. He came not to make war, but to make war cease. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. All the other kings you might crown demand that you give your life for them and serve them, but Jesus is the king who has come to give his life for you to serve you. And that's what makes him different. This all comes out in the text, in his tears. Again, I'm thinking of verse 41. Do you see it? When he drew near... He saw the city and he wept over it. Now, this has turned into a parade and Jesus is the grand marshal. What would you be doing? Have you practiced the princess wave in the mirror at home? Waving to the adoring crowds? Or as you imagine this scene, if, you can, if you're old enough like me to remember like Sunday school when you were a kid and the flannel graph, do you remember the flannel graph? I mean... What, what do you think the flannel graph picture of Jesus had him doing on Palm Sunday? It wasn't this. We miss this somehow. Nobody expects this. And yet it says that as they begin to celebrate him, in the middle of the parade in his honor, he is weeping. And if you look at the word carefully there, this isn't just a tear tr- trinkling down his face. This is the ugly cry. I mean, the, the, the word here describes a very loud, a very public show of grief. And it must have been jarring. It's jarring to me as I read it, and I hope it's jarring to you as well. And so we have to ask some questions of the text here. Why, 
of why then, why is he weeping? And it says that when he saw the city, he started to weep. He saw, he saw Jerusalem, God's, God's city, the city of peace, and there was no peace. And he began to lament. Look there at what he says, verse 42 and below. He says, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You do not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept because the city was under the judgment of God because of their sins. And within a generation, in 70 AD, the Romans would lay siege to the city, and the Roman general Titus would do all that Jesus described there, and it was awful. You can go and you can read the historical accounts of mothers killing their babies to eat them because the starvation was so great. God would judge them for their sins, but in Jesus, he had first come with terms of peace. He had come to visit them. You see verse 44, that word? It's a significant word. He, God himself had come down in the person of Jesus to walk among them <clears throat> and to teach them and to show them the way of salvation, but the way they would not listen. They would not receive him. Sure, the crowds, they're lauding him at the moment, but soon they will be calling for his death. <clears throat> and he weeps over their hard-heartedness and sin and unbelief. But I think a second question is, what does his weeping mean? What does it reveal about the kind of king that he is? He came to his own and they did not receive him, John writes. They rejected him. They will see him crucified in just a few short days. And he considers all of their sin. He feels all of their rejection. But he isn't angry. He's sad. He's just sad. And it's remarkable, really, when you think about it. Now, the objection would be something like this. But yes, but isn't God angry at sin? Of course he is. I just told you, in 40 years, Jerusalem would be destroyed in an act of judgment. But first... First is the time of visitation, verse 44, which is theological shorthand for God showing up in person to save his people. Because it's his truest heart. And that's what I want you to see. It's what I want you to, to hold on to as we, as we leave this morning. Dane Ortland, who's written a wonderful little book that some of you probably have read, Gentle and Lowly, but he quotes some of the Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, for example, who says this. Listen to this. He says, mercy may in some respect be said to be more natural to God than acts of justice. There is something in it that is contrary to him, that is punishing justice. When he exercises acts of justice, it's for a higher end. It's not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. Uh, now, this, this is such a profound thought. This has come under some fire here in recent days, but it's hard to argue. You have Thomas Goodwin there, and then he quotes Jonathan Edwards, who says, God delights in mercy. Judgment is a strange work. He's just saying what John Calvin said. Listen to John Calvin. He said, God is slow to anger and inclined toward mercy. Here you have the true character of God. When he punishes, it's almost quasi against his nature. Not that it is any more improper for God to punish than it is for him to be gracious. He only wants to open his heart to us if we will permit him. He wills to be known as good and merciful. And it is in that that his glory principally shines. Now, God's emotional life is very complex. It's beyond us. But here we have Jesus' tears. <clears throat> and it's his tears that I want to draw our attention to yet again because they, they are so remarkable. Nic Nicholas Volterstaff has written a beautiful book about lament. He lost a son and he wrote about it. And, and here's what he said. He said, the tears of God are the meaning of history. In other words, at the very beginning when the man and the woman first sinned, God had a choice. He, he had a choice to be angry or to be sad. And he chose sadness. He chose 
to live with a broken heart, which, mean, which meant that he would ultimately suffer, which leads us to this very moment here where he is coming, indeed, going into the city to a cross. Thus, human history through the ages bringing us to this place is because of the tears, because God was willing to cry and not just condemn and come in judgment against the sin of the first man and the first woman. But why? Here's what he says. He says, God is love. That's why he suffers. Listen to this phrase. To love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. We're in it together, God and we. The history of the world is the history of our suffering together. Every act of evil extracts a tear from God. Every plunge into anguish extracts a sob from God, but also the history of our world is the history of our deliverance together. God's work to release himself from his suffering is his work to deliver the world from its agony. And here's Jesus cresting the Mount of Olives. And if you're familiar at all with the geography there, the road into Jerusalem will take him up over the mountain and down into the Kidron Valley and then up the other side into the city. I was there. My face Isn't the Facebook reminders thing just great? And I, I had a reminder yesterday. I was there three years ago yesterday. I was at this very spot in person right here. And I can tell you that the place where the road begins to descend over the mountain to this day, all it is is just a huge cemetery. There's just tombstone after tombstone after tombstone on the hillside. It's a place of death. Because historically, that's exactly what it was. The Kidron Valley was named that because the river at the bottom would run black with the blood of the sacrifices from the temple. And so here on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is being hailed king, rightly so. But what we know is that he will soon descend into the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus' tears mean that God is love. And love means suffering, and so in Jesus Christ, the suffering of love of God will be put on full display as he goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And here's the great news that I've been sent as a messenger to you with this morning is this, that God's truest response to sin and all of its consequences is mercy. Our sin and heartbreak break his heart. He has not sheltered himself off from this pain. He has allowed it to enter his heart. And he has come in Jesus Christ to enter into our suffering, to go to the cross, to die there as our substitute so that we might have our sin forgiven and we might be healed by his death and resurrection. And so the weeping king, the one you see weeping here, the tears of this king, he is the king you need. He is the one. And here you see him showing up to have his heart broken in love for you. Isn't that great news? And so if you see it then, here's what happens. His tears, when you see them, will give you a mission. It'll get you, a mi- it'll get you on mission. This is the thing that can propel you into a life of following him and taking up your cross and, and imitating him. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to the cross, and he wants you to go with him to do, to do what he has done. And to do that, you have to embrace sadness. But often we start out being sad, but let's be honest, eventually it gets the best of us and we become angry because we get tired. It takes a lot of energy and self-control And perseverance to just stay sad. Anger is way easier. And too often our anger is an expression of our selfishness. But when you're you're just sad, right, you're not in control. And we don't like to not be in control. And anger is often how we regain control. So so how do you keep showing up to get your heart broken? If, If to love in this suffering, sinful world is to suffer, where do you find the strength to choose that kind of life? You have to see in his tears the depth of the of his love for you. Jesus sees your sin and feels compassion. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. He knows your story. 
He knows all the bad decisions on your part that have led you to the life that you're living. He also knows all the pain inflicted on you by others, and it all makes him weep. Hebrews says this, we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And I love that verse because it says that Jesus is compassionate, not just towards you in general, but he, I want, he is compassionate even toward your weakness, your sin, the very worst parts of you, the parts that drive you crazy. Can I get, a, can I get an amen, right? I mean, there are parts, I mean, the parts that drive you crazy about you, and by the way, that drive everybody else crazy about you too, they don't drive him crazy. He's not frustrated. He's not ready to give up on you. He doesn't roll his eyes at you. He weeps for you because he loves you. And his love for you can energize your love for others. You'll begin to really see you begin to really go about your life seeing the people in your life. It says Jesus saw the city, and it was seeing the city that caused him to weep. Listen, there's a universe alive within the people we love. At best, we know a little plot of land within them that we've mapped out, but there are entire lands and oceans and skies and galaxies that we cannot even fathom. We have at best some rumors of the mystery that exists within the people we spend our lives with. What if we could really start to see one another? If you're struggling to feel compassion for someone just, or, and, and you're tempted to just be angry instead, it's because you stopped seeing them. Love begins with looking. Who are you not seeing? But you not only begin to see, you begin to risk with the people in your life. C.S. Lewis is right. There's no safe investment. If you love, it'll mean a broken heart. Love is risky, but it's worth the risk. And there's only one place outside of heaven where we can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers and the risks and the inconveniences of love, and that's hell. There is one certainty. God's love. Everything else is a risk. But his love is so sure, so true, so steady, so strong, so lasting, we can risk. We can forgive. We can risk in forgiving. We can keep believing in someone who has let us down. We can keep showing up to get our heart broken. As a church, you can try stuff and fail, and it's okay. Where is God calling you to risk? But thirdly, we can not only begin to see and begin to risk, you can begin to weep with the people in your life. Out of loyalty to the one who weeps over our sin and brokenness, we must weep with each other and weep over each other. We must choose to be sad, not aggravated, not hard-hearted toward one another as we struggle with these parts of ourselves that we can't seem to get away from and we continue to sin against one another, we have to enter into one another's pain because that is the supreme act of love, to allow your hurt to hurt me. We have to weep over the way sin has broken the world. Weep before we start to cast blame. Can you imagine the testimony that would be ours if Christians led the way in our world to weep over the things, uh, the way the world is breaking and not just start to cast blame angrily? So where do you need to weep? What do you need to weep over? Who do you need to weep over instead of just being angry? But one last thing. If you see his tears, it can give you a mission and you can begin to really see and begin to risk and begin to weep. But if you see his tears, his tears will also give you a voice. You see, mission is fueled by worship and his tears can lead you to that. They can lead you to worship as well. The Pharisees want Jesus to be quiet, but it says it can't be done. Don't you love this? Verse 40 is the best verse in the whole passage, isn't it? It says, Jesus says, listen, you want these, these to be quiet, but I tell you, if these are silent, the stones are going to cry out. I mean, the Psalms are full of imagery like this, that at the king's coming, the trees would clap their hands and the mountains and the hills would, would break out in spontaneous song 
and the creation itself would break forth with shouts of joy. The creation is groaning and longing for redemption. And when the king finally comes, the creation will spontaneously begin to lift its voice to the king. And here's the thing for you and me. If we, take, if we can take in this scene, if we can see his tears and his love, and there's no song, there's no spontaneous joy inside of us just bursting, you know, to come out of us, then something's really wrong. We're seen but not really seen. Our hearts are hard. The rocks and the trees are more spiritually in tune with what's happening than we are if that's the case. But here's the thing. If the beauty and the glory of Jesus, if it has the power to take inanimate objects and give them a voice, then if God would open our eyes, you and me, if he would open our eyes to see him, to see him as he really is, and if you would see it, I think you see it in his tears, if he would open our eyes, if he'd open our hearts to receive him, then it could transform whatever dullness we might feel into the kind of worship he deserves. That's what the psalmist wrote. John Newton wrote many hymns, but probably one of my favorites is a hymn called How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Listen to his words. He says, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes his sorrows. It heals his wounds and drives away his fears. This is the best verse, though. He says, weak is the effort of our heart and cold our warmest thoughts. But when we see him, excuse me, but when we see thee as thou art, we'll praise thee as we ought. Amen? Pray with me if you would then as we close. So, Father.